we want to dig into the Word of God right now. And I invite you to take your Bibles, please, and turn with me to the book of 2 Corinthians. Uh, 2 Corinthians uh, chapter 8. And uh, we're going to be camping out in these two chapters over the next uh, four Sundays as we look at the theme of God, grace, and generosity. Those three words I want you to be thinking about uh, not only this morning as we introduce uh, this wonderful subject to you, but throughout this series, you're going to hear a lot about God, you're going to hear a lot about grace, and you will hear a lot about generosity because God is the world's greatest giver and then he gives to us the privilege and the capacity to give back to him. So if you have your Bibles, uh, please turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 8, and we're going to read these first few verses together. Will you please stand in honor of the Word of God? Now, brothers, we want you to know about the grace. There it is. The grace that God has given the Macedonian churches out of the most severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. There it is again. Generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability, entirely on their own, they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the saints. And they did not do as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us in keeping with God's will. This is a powerful passage where Paul is encouraging the Corinthians to remember a previous commitment they had made to the mother church in Jerusalem to pick up an offering for them and Somehow, though there was an original desire in the Corinthians' heart to do so, somewhere down the line, they had become a bit apathetic and had not gotten around to it. And so Paul now is going to use the experience of the Macedonian churches, the churches that he planted on his second missionary journey, as an example, as a case study to spur on the Corinthians, to complete that which they had promised. Let's pray together. Lord, we love you. We thank you so much for the privilege of being able to come and study your word and learn about your grace, learn about uh, the majesty of who you are and to understand that each one of us have been called to uh, fulfill uh, the commitments that we make uh, to you and Uh, to the cause of Jesus Christ. I'm so thankful, Lord, for East Bay. What a special group of people these are. We praise you and thank you for the mighty workings of your Holy Spirit in so many of our lives, individually and corporately. Lord, you're at work, and we we just want to say thank you. Uh, And so, Lord, as we begin this study, help us to uh, open our hearts and our minds to your truth and Help us to grasp the principles that you would have for us this morning, I pray, in the matchless name of Jesus. Amen. You may be seated. God, grace, 
and generosity. As I've been thinking about these uh, particular verses over the last several weeks, I've been reminded that when we talk about giving, we're not just talking about good money management, but we're talking about using our skills, our talents, our abilities, using our time, as well as our resources to advance the kingdom of God. And the more I have thought about it, I've come to the conclusion that giving is really the true measure of our love. Giving really is the language of love. And when you stop and think about it, God is the one that set all of this in motion because he gave the very best. His one and only son. You know the verse so well. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. This is a powerful expression of how much God cares for us. And because of the way in which he has graciously given of himself to us as Christ followers who have been transformed by his grace, he equips us then to use our time, our talents, and our treasure to advance his kingdom for his glory. One of the things that we need to be reminded about is that the scripture has an awful lot to say about the Christ follower and his management of personal resources. In fact, if you'll take the time to, uh, to uh, count the number of passages that refer to a Christian and his management of money, you'll discover there are 1,539 passages in Scripture that refer to giving and stewardship of our personal resources. There are only 523 biblical passages that refer to praying. Now, that is not to say that praying is insignificant and that giving is more significant. It just is a reminder that the Bible has an awful lot to say about how we use our resources, our time, our talent, and our treasure for the glory of God. And here in 2 Corinthians chapters 8 and 9, the apostle gives us some wonderful teaching about how we are to use all that God has given to us, not for ourselves, but for his glory and for the expansion of his kingdom. Now, it's very interesting that he seeks to encourage them here about what I call whole life stewardship. Uh, more than a year has passed from the time Paul had first encouraged the Corinthians to give a special offering for the church in Jerusalem. You could read about that in 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 1 to 4. You'll remember it was the Jerusalem church that had sent out Paul and his partners to plant many other churches throughout the empire. And as that church had given of their resources and given of uh, their personnel to plant the gospel in every aspect of the world, the Jerusalem church had come upon hard times. And so Paul, back in 1 Corinthians, had, had a desire to remind the Corinthians that now this church that has invested so much in you, now they have some need, and I want you to do everything you can to... Uh, 
take up a, a, an offering that will express your love for those that have invested in you. But the Corinthians themselves had fallen on hard times. And during these intervening months, it becomes impossible for them to follow through on the commitment that they had made to give this gift to the Jerusalem church. Now, just exactly uh, what occurred with the Corinthians is really not known. It could have been they just got busy and forgot about their commitment. It could have been because of a little bit of apathy. But on the other hand, uh, false teachers had infiltrated their midst, and they had undermined Paul's credibility. And they had spoken negatively about Paul, and that caused the Corinthians maybe to take a step back rather than to fulfill the commitment that they had made. But whatever the case, the Corinthians had been distracted. And uh, they had once had a real desire to do this, but for whatever reason now, uh, they had fallen behind. And so you come to 2 Corinthians, and Paul begins to challenge the church at Corinth, and he uses the Macedonian churches, these churches that have been planted throughout the empire, as a case study to stir up in their minds a desire to follow through on the liberality and generosity that they had first promised. Now, one of the things that I just want to touch on briefly is that when we talk about giving, <clears throat> we're not talking about it as something that is a law that we have to do. Back in the Old Testament, uh, the Israelites were required by law, it was to give certain portions of their income to the Lord. But when you come to the New Testament, we find that we are not under law, but we are under grace. But many of us misunderstand and think that the tithe, the 10% of our income that the Bible speaks about, is basically the maximum of our giving, when in reality, if you study the scriptures, it is the minimum that we can give. When you go back into the Old Testament, you'll discover that the Hebrews had at least three tithes that they were under obligation to give. It wasn't optional. They were, were mandated by the law to give them. Uh, first of all, you had the Levite tithe, uh, which was about 10% of their income, and that took care of the priestly services. Then there was the festival tithe, another 10% given to build religious community and celebration with God's people to develop ministry. And then there was a poor tithe that was taken every three years to meet the welfare needs of strangers, the fatherless, and the widows. And so when you go back into the Old Testament and what the Hebrews were required to do, instead of 10%, you add up all these particular tithes, the conscientious Hebrew had to give close to 23 to 25% of their income to the Lord. But that's not all. As you keep on reading in the scriptures, when they would harvest their fields, they were to leave the corners of the fields. Uh, 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 they wouldn't harvest the corners so that, again, the poor and the needy uh, could go in there and pick up the, uh, the remaining grain or pick up the grapes that were left behind. 
In Nehemiah, we also discover that there were additional tithes that the people had to pay for the materials used in the temple offerings. And so when you stop and think about all of this, uh, under law, the people were required to give between 25 and 30% of their income. That was a law that was not something that was optional for them. But that's not all. In addition to all of these prescribed ties, the Hebrews were required to offer what the Bible calls as free will offerings. And these were in addition to already the resources they had given. They were to give a first fruits offering to the Lord freely because... They wanted to please God. This was something that was voluntary. It wasn't something forced, but it was something that they were encouraged to do. They were also urged to bring free will offerings to the Lord for specific purposes. In fact, if you go back into the Old Testament, the book of Exodus, the people, in addition to all of these prescribed tithes that they were to give, they were asked to bring in free will offerings to provide for the tabernacle. And in Exodus chapter 36, the people bring so much that the priests actually have to restrain them from giving. Have you ever heard of this happening? You've given too much, stop. You've given, oh, more and more and more. I've never experienced that. Most churches have never experienced anything like that. But in the Old Testament, this is how God's people honor the Lord with their time, their talent, and their resources. Now today, we are not under law, but we are under grace. Uh, Does that mean we give God less? Does that mean we give Him more? What does it mean to be under grace? And I believe that this passage will help us to understand. I want you to notice here in chapter 8 of 2 Corinthians, he's not talking here about tithing. He's talking about giving. And he begins by saying, And now, brothers, I want you to know about the grace that God has given to the Macedonian churches. It is something that they have received because they have put their faith and their trust in the Lord Jesus. And then throughout this passage, he refers again and again to grace. For example, in verse 4, notice, he says, They urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service. Okay, this word service really is translated gracious service to the saints. You go on in verse 6. Notice he encourages them to complete this act of grace. Put a circle around that. Uh, And in verse 7, again, he talks about we are to excel in this what? This grace of giving. And there are several other passages in the chapter 8 scripture reference that refers to grace. So grace is something that God does in our hearts. It is a heart transformation. And God is looking for a heart transformation more than anything else in our lives as his people. 
We don't give because we have to give. We don't give because we're asked to give. We give because we love Jesus. And we give because of his workings in our hearts. And as Paul continues on in this passage, he helps the Corinthians to understand how grace giving impacts uh, the ways in which we give. First of all, he says uh, to the Corinthians that the Macedonians, first of all, they give substantially. Notice in verse 2, out of the most severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. They evidence, first of all, as they begin to give, he says these Thessalonians, they evidence substantial joy. And what makes this very interesting is that they're not in the best of circumstances. Notice they had been experiencing uh, a severe trial uh, and extreme poverty. But in spite of these things that they were experiencing as they had given and had provided resources for the Jerusalem church, there was a joy, a substantial joy that overflowed in their hearts. And it wasn't because they had a lot to give. It was because God's grace was at work within them and they enjoyed giving because of what God had done in their own hearts and lives. Not only do they evidence substantial joy, they evidence substantial generosity. Notice it says their giving welled up in rich generosity. Uh, generosity has nothing to do with the amount that we give. It has everything to do with our attitude. In fact, I've discovered that some of the most generous people, when it comes to giving of their time, talent, and treasures, they don't have the strongest financial portfolio. Some of the greatest generosity is oftentimes expressed by people that don't have a lot. Oftentimes we say, if I had a lot, I'd give a lot more. That's not necessarily the case. Uh, you'll remember the, the, uh, the widow uh, who only had a couple of coins to give to the Lord, and she gave them because of her attitude. She wanted to honor the Lord. And so this is the case with the Macedonians. They, they give with this substantial joy, and they give with substantial generosity, and thirdly, they give with substantial sacrifice. Notice verse 3, he says, For I testify that they gave as much as they were able, and then underline this next phrase, it's very interesting, even beyond their ability. In other words, they gave more than they could afford to give, again, because they were so in love with Jesus, so, so thankful that they had been the recipients of his grace. You see, giving takes on a whole new dimension when we understand that it is simply a love gift back to God for all that he has given to us. And when you stop and think about the transformation that happens in our lives, how he changes us, at one moment, we're spiritually dead. Then he makes us spiritually alive. He provides for our needs. He wants us to trust him and to use our time and our talent and our treasure to advance his kingdom for his glory and has nothing to do with the amount that we give. It has everything to do with our heart attitude. Number two, 
They not only give substantially, but they give spontaneously. You see this in verse 3. It says, entirely on their own. Uh, In other words, this was not something that they were forced to do. These people were so in love with Jesus. The Macedonians were so in love with Jesus that they couldn't help but give. It was something that they initiated themselves. And so they demonstrate, number one, a spontaneous willingness. This was entirely on their own. Secondly, they display a spontaneous eagerness. Notice, Paul says in verse 4, that they urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the saints. Now, this tells us an interesting truth about the Apostle Paul. He understood what the Macedonians were going through, and he was a bit reticent even to ask them to participate in this offering because he knew they had experienced much distress and persecution. He knew they were poverty-stricken. And so this verse tells us that he he was a little bit uh, reluctant to even bring it up. But the text says they urgently plead, Paul, Paul, it's okay. We want to give. There's something about the grace of God in their lives that they wanted to participate and help those that had been so instrumental in their own personal transformation. They feel a deep sense of gratitude for the Mother Church. Indeed, that Mother Church in Jerusalem had been sacrificial in their giving so that the gospel could come to them. And now they had an opportunity to respond in kind to the Jerusalem Church. And there's something about the grace of God at work within them that motivates them to give even beyond what they could afford because God's grace was active among them. And then thirdly, they not only give substantially uh, and they give spontaneously, but this is the most important thing we can understand about the Macedonians. They did not do as we expected but they gave themselves, put a circle around the word first. First to the Lord, and then to us in keeping with God's will. See, this is the secret of grace giving. We will never be motivated to give a graceful gift until first of all, we have given ourselves fully and completely to Jesus. They gave themselves first to the Lord. You see, God, God doesn't really need our money, okay? But we need to give. You write this down. God's not after your pocketbook. He's after your heart. And once he has your heart and you have given him first place in your life, That transforms all giving. It comes from the heart. It's because of God's grace at work within us. And this is what Paul is encouraging the Corinthians to do, is to learn to give from the heart. And that is grace giving at its best. Grudge giving says, I hate to give, but I guess I'll have to give. 
Duty giving says I ought to give, but I don't want to give. But spiritual giving says I delight to give because God has given me everything that I need to experience his presence forever and ever. He gave his son. His son went to the cross and died for me. How can I do anything less than give him the very best of my time, my talent, my treasure to advance his kingdom because he has given so much to me? The manner of our giving measures our love for the Lord. I think of the missionary Jim Elliott. God took him to South America a number of years ago to speak to the Alka Indians, to bring the gospel to them. But in the process, Jim Elliott lost his life. But in giving his life in service for Jesus, Many Alcas now have come to faith in Christ, and for the last 60 to 70 plus years, the impact of the gospel has been felt in that sphere of the world. When he was a student at Wheaton College, Jim Elliott settled who was number one in his life. He gave himself first to the Lord, and he wrote in his diary, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. You see, when God is enthroned as first in our lives, all other giving, whether it's time, whether it's talent or treasure, becomes a gift that we give back to the one who has given his all for us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we love you and we thank you for your presence. We thank you for your goodness and your grace. Truly, there is no one like our God. None of us can match your generosity. We fall so short, but because of what you've given for us, And as the Macedonians demonstrated in their lives as just young followers of Christ, that when our eyes are upon Jesus, giving becomes a delight, it becomes a joy, it becomes something that we want to do because Christ is alive and well in our hearts. Thank you for the privilege of knowing you and loving you and offering to you each week our time, our talent, and our treasure for the glory of Jesus, in whose name we pray. Amen.
This morning as we prepare our hearts for communion again, we do so because of God's grace. God has saved us by His grace. He keeps us by His grace. And He equips us with grace gifts to minister to the body of Christ. So this morning as we gather around the table of the Lord, we do so in thanksgiving for all that he's given to us. So I'm going to invite the men to please come forward and to begin serving you the elements, the bread, and the wine. This is a holy moment in the life of the church where we can partake together because of God's grace in our lives. These symbols that remind us of the fact that we're all sinners, but we've all been saved by the grace of God. If you don't know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior today, I would invite you to just bow your head and simply say, Lord Jesus, please come into my life. I need you. It's only when we make Jesus Christ front and center and embrace him fully that we can experience the measurelessness of his love and his grace that he longs to give to us. And so as you receive your element, I encourage you to open up the uh, bottom part, uh, which contains the uh, little piece of bread. And the bread, of course, is a reminder of the fact that Jesus' body was broken for us. He went to the cross, he laid down his life for us. He did for us what we could never do for ourselves. He paid it all. We sang about it just a few minutes ago. And because he paid it all, and because his body was broken, you and I, our lives that have been broken by sin can be healed and made new as we embrace the Lord Jesus. So in these quiet moments, we're just gonna take a few moments of silent prayer and then I'm going to pray for the bread and then we will partake together. Thank him for his broken body, for the way in which he has made a way for all of us to experience his life.
Let us eat the bread together. Then if you'll turn the container on the other side and peel back the foil. We have the juice which reminds us of the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The blood of Christ is precious. There is life in the blood. And isn't it wonderful that we don't have to keep sacrificing bulls and goats over and over and over again. The Bible says Jesus became our once and for all sacrifice that never needs to be repeated. He has paid it all. There's nothing we can add to his finished work. And my friend, the most important decision you will ever make is a decision to trust Christ and to allow His grace to control every dimension of your life. And so again, let's just pause and say thank you for the blood that forgives, the blood that wipes the slate clean and makes us whiter than snow, and the blood that assures us that Jesus Christ is coming again. Let me tell you, friend, the stage is getting set, and we need to be ready. So let us partake, not only in thankfulness for forgiveness and salvation, but let us partake in anticipation of seeing Jesus face to face. Let us drink the cup together. This morning as we dismiss the service, I want to remind you that there will be the helping hands little box in the back which I want to encourage you to give a gift to so that we can help others in our church and in our community that need the Lord and have physical and emotional needs. And this is a way in which we can participate and reach out to them in the bonds of Christ's love. Let's stand together, shall we please, for closing prayer. Father in heaven, how we love you. How we adore you. We are so thankful for the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. That grace that rescues us, that grace that saves that grace that motivates us to be givers of time and talent and treasure for the glory of God. And as we leave here, may we be overwhelmed with the reality of your love and with the great hope that we have because we belong to you, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ the love of God and that sweet communion of the Holy Spirit be with you now and evermore we pray. Amen. Good morning and Maranatha, lo he comes. Have a great day in Jesus.